Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello, and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey guys, Dr. Santosh here, your pediatric infectious disease doc. And researcher. Oh, and researcher, sorry. <laughs> Come on, man. You're was... forgetting your own intro now. No, no, it's, uh, sorry. I've been doing uh, patient care kind of for two weeks straight, and that's all I've been thinking about for a while. And I've while I'm doing this particular episode with Dr. Josh, I'm writing a dose of prednisone. So I'm very much in the, the pediatric infectious disease mode right now. This, this season's uh, going to be fun. It is. Yeah. We're, we're kind of so excited, you know, to delve into weird syndromes and a little bit outside of our comfort zone. We're actually spending a lot of this season getting back to basics. We've talked about dialysis, which is, you know, nephrology is classic internal medicine. Today, we're going to go dive right back into a nice, classic hospital internal medicine condition. Ooh, okay. Um, and something that I don't see a lot in pediatrics. We're going to be talking about the disease of kings. Uh, uh, wait, something about crowning. That's an obstetrics joke, though. That's not, that, <laughs> that's OBGYN. That's usually not adult medicine. Not unless uh, Danny Vito and Schwarzenegger get back together. Um, oh, twins. no, but uh, <laughs> we're actually going to be talking about gout, known as the king of diseases, the disease of kings, and a method of measuring social standing, and also the reason America exists. All of that and more this week. <laughs> I don't, I don't, 
You know, I even I read the show notes this time, and I don't know how you're going to tie all that together. Well, that's uh, where that we are, my friend. Crazy. So I'm going to start yeah. <laughs> before we get into the history. I'm going to offer you a choice. I can introduce you to gout through the means of a poem yeah. or a fable. I I love the poem. I think we can put it in the show notes, but it is a long. It's not quite an epic poem. It's not like the Odyssey. For those of you who do want to hear me read the poem, <laughs> but we'll look, throw that up yeah. on our Patreon for uh, a special thing, and maybe it'll circle back around <laughs> later in this year. But maybe, maybe with me so commentating, how <laughs> did gout get to be known as the disease of kings? And you thought the fable was shorter than the poem? Okay. Well, here we go. The gout <laughs> and the spider. Let me get into my audible storytelling voice. The fable of the gout and the spider, told by a country gardener. Now the gout and the spider, having been old acquaintances, met once in a summer's evening, and, after ordinary salutations, began to congratulate each other's good luck. The gout extolled his good fortune, that he was so luckily placed in a stately house, where the owner of it caressed him with all manner of kindness, comforting him with plasters, refreshing him with oil and frictions, covering him with scarlet and flannel, and treating him with so much civility that he was not put to the toil of walking, but rested day and night in a warm room. The spider, on contrast, said, I have taken up my quarters in a poor man's cottage, where though my entertainment be but mean, I enjoy safety and tranquility. I spread my nets throughout the house. I have as many webs in the loom as would serve all my generations, and nobody disturbs me. The two of them, having mutually told each other of their happiness, a curiosity pricked them to change quarters for one night, that each might be a witness of the other's good condition. And so they parted, appointing to meet in the same place at the same time the following day and recount their adventures. Accordingly, the gout marched to the cottage, attacked the owner, and took up residence in his great toe, whereas the spider climbed up the water spout, ascended to the gentleman's parlor, fell presently to work, and before day had extended his web through all the spaces of the room. Well, the next night passed, and the two had not met, and the night after that, and they finally met again, but in most deplorable condition. The gout looked as if he were half drowned and half dead. The spider, as though he were frightened out of his wits, but wondering at one another's fate and recollecting themselves, the gout told his friend, when he came to the cottage, according to custom, he seized on the good man's toe, expecting to rest quietly there. But to his astonishment, the man started up, ran about with naked feet, and plunged himself into a pond, almost drowning or choking poor gout, so that he had hardly escaped with his life. Well, replied the spider, my fortune has been little better. For having finished my work and spread my nets up and down the room, I took me to rest and wait for food. But early in the morning, the chambermaid came, and with her broom and whisk, unmercifully destroyed and tore down everything I had wrought. Upon that alarm, I retreated into a hole, and with much difficulty made my escape. I tried rebuilding all my work the next night, and again she knocked it down the following morning. So... After a little pausing, the two of them took leave, the gout returning to the rich man and the spider to the poor. But 
lest the repetition of such frivolous and incoherent stuff may prove as troublesome as the disease it treats, or the wanton excursions of my story prove equally vexatious to the twinges of the gout, in pure pity and good manners, I desist, and with all possible respect and sincerity, present to you our episode. Time ago, and to be perfectly honest, I'm not sure why a <laughs> spider was chosen as the counterfoil to gout, because I'll tell you... I got a lot of spiders hanging around in my apartment, too, who I've had to hold multiple leasing agreements with. This was one of those situations where you had such a divide between the rich and the poor. There really wasn't enough food to go around for the poor for them to get gout, but there were insects everywhere. But for the rich, you know, you could afford all this, you know, a giant amount of land and then, you know, keep all the spiders out. But for big, rich food that you'd have, especially if you were a king, wine and meats and all this kind of stuff that the peasant wouldn't be able to eat, you'd get the gout. So gout is derived from the Latin word gouda or drop. And it basically started as a belief that it was an excess of one of the four humors that once it you know, exceeded a certain point would drop or flow into a joint causing pain and inflammation. Like oh, Skrillex shit. does with the beat. <laughs> 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 yeah. this is, but they didn't have the... <laughs> Sorry, I'm just imagining like a, like a medieval DJ. <laughs> wow, drop wow, the gout. Wow. Hippocrates was the first one to note the link between the disease and a lifestyle. And he called gout or specifically podagra, which we'll get to as arthritis of the rich, as opposed to rheumatism, arthritis of the poor. Gout's always been sort of a class warfare disease. And and Galen was the very first to describe Tophi, Tophi, <laughs> Tophi Grace, the crystallized deposits that follow yeah. gout. So the reason gout is called podagra is actually really neat. In Greek, podagra means foot trap, as if how your foot would feel if you had the gout. And it occurred with you know some such frequency that podagra got its own deification in Greece. It was the child of Dionysius, oh. the god of wine, and Aphrodite, the goddess of love, and was represented either sometimes as an old man who was bent and sometimes as a young, attractive, but always carrying a crooked staff wrapped in vine leaves. So the idea that gout resulted from service to these gods of wine and love was a consequence of overindulgence in sex, food, and wine. There was even a play written by a Syrian Greek satiricist, Lucian of Samosata, who wrote about this goddess, Podagra, boasting not even Apollo or Asclepius can subjugate her power with medicine, and people try everything against her. And in his play, he lists all the treatments at the time, including sacrifices, rituals, dedications of temples, use of prayer and gifts. Interestingly, gifts of the crocus flower or colchicine, along with the poppy flower, help to appease the goddess, and she relents, lifting her curse. There's also... A ton. Yeah. Painkillers and uh, and colchicine. Right? 
which is what we use to an extent today. So even known about back then is what got her to give in. But there's also, if you enjoy satirical ancient Greek humor, a huge number of foot jokes throughout that play where Bodagra makes casual references to famous Greek heroes, Oedipus the clubfoot, Achilles heel, Odysseus recognized by women washing his feet. And all of these references to heroes' feet imply that they all had gout from heroic <laughs> I love it. Ooh, um, I know you got to do your uh, fable and then um, you, you had the, the poem over here as well. Um, did you did you get to see this poem, uh, Jonathan Swift? Is that the one that you were going to say? Y you know the poem I was going to say. It's right there in front <laughs> of you, Mr. I'd Rather Hear the <laughs> There's, But there's like a shorter version is, as if the gout should seize the head, doctors pronounce the patient dead. But if they can, by all their arts, eject it to the extremest parts, they give the sick man joy and praise, the gout that will prolong his days. Rebecca, thus I gladly greet who drives her cares to hands and feet. Yeah, so gout was believed to be a charm that would protect against other diseases. If you had gout, you wouldn't get fever or consumption oh, because... yeah. Um, and in fact, in some eras, such as those of Jonathan Swift, gout was perceived as socially desirable because, <laughs> because of its prevalence among the politically and socially powerful. Again, this association with affluence. You know, and the London Times even said the common cold is well named, but gout instantly raises the patient's social status. And even in the 1960s, an author wrote, in keeping with the spirit of more democratic times, gout is becoming less upper class and is now open to all. It's ridiculous <laughs> that a man should be barred from enjoying gout because he went to the wrong school. <laughs> I absolutely love this. Okay. Uh, Podagra and Comium of 1562 by Hieronymus Cardanus of Pavia, 1501 to 1576, a physician and a mathematician, Cardanus explained that for with Venus and Bacchus, the feasts of voluptuaries and abiding covenant serves as cheek and such a cause of happiness as she meaning the gout, that those who are restrained by her are compelled to lead lives that, except for the pain itself, are happy. For she does not render them sterile, but restores to them Venus, meaning boners, with which increased prowess. Dude, this is this is awesome. Are you? I feel like this is this is a <laughs> this disease that Bernie Sanders would be really upset about. I tell you, you can't have gout. <laughs> it's not fair. It should be spread to everybody. <laughs> the, the, the two percent, the one percent are hogging all the gout. <laughs> and what do we get for it? Fever. <laughs> Which is, by the way, it's not true. This was this was the ultimate like correlation, not causation, right? Essentially, these people who were getting gout were not suffering from the one thing that was predisposing everybody else at the time to malnutrition or to, to infection. And that was malnutrition. You know, if you couldn't eat right and, you know, have vitamin C and vitamin A and certain levels of trace minerals and all these kinds of things, you'd get sick from everything. And not to mention you were doing dirty jobs and that kind of a thing. Else, were they done um, dirt cheap? But if you were eating in excess, <laughs> yeah, they totally were.
Usually they were done for nothing. <laughs> and, and you'll like it. Um, but yeah, there was such a disparity between rich and poor that either you were living in excess and you'd have tons and tons of food and you'd have the diseases of the rich, which were obesity, diabetes, gout, and this kind of a thing. And you wouldn't catch infections like tuberculosis or malaria if you visited, um, you know, down into uh, Africa. And you'd even have a better chance against things like the measles because you'd have vitamin A. You know, if you were poor, like there was no middle ground, then you would lack the gout, but you'd be, you know, did you be subject to all these infectious diseases because of your malnutrition? Luckily, thanks to this democracy, like, now this is lots of people awesome get gout from those Western-style diets. Well, yeah, but it's because you can buy Keystone Light <laughs> for a nickel. That's all Keystone Light is worth. <laughs> I don't know if this is going to make the final cut, but this Lucian of Samosada, <laughs> as soon as you say it, I can't get that mama say mama sa mama sa ta out of my head. And it's just like in my head, like a loop. And like I'm trying to listen to you, and it keeps going sama say sama sa sama sa ta. And then da 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 podagara. It falls down to your feet, guta. Lucian sama so ta. Yeah. just. You're probably. Do you guys remember we told you it's going to be a very musical uh, <laughs> season? This was an obsession. This is so cool. But this also, um, Josh, this ties in to why, you know, you wouldn't catch tuberculosis as a rich person. Uh, or you'd have less of a chance of catching tuberculosis. And really wealthy rich women would go to sanitariums to catch consumption on purpose so they could look all you know, thin and chic. Well, well, sir, before we get into the pathology and the real medicine that you all came for, I'm kidding. You come for these fun stories. We know. I'm going to tell you why we have gout to directly, well, indirectly thank for our independence. This story starts with British statesman William Pitt, the elder. And, and occasionally, <laughs> William right. suffered from a condition that made him feel like he was in the pits, which would have, of course... Disabling <laughs> gouty arthritis. Gotcha. Now, why is this important? Well, during one of Pitt's gout-related absences from Parliament in 1765, UK, the Great Britain passed the Stamp Act, which forced unwilling colonists to pay a tax determined by British Parliament to defray the cost of defending the colonies against French attack. When Pitt recovered from his gout, he came back to Parliament and said, you guys, this is not okay. He succeeded in getting the Stamp Act repealed with the famous words, the Americans are the sons, not the bastards of England. And as subjects, they're entitled to the right of common representation and cannot be bound to pay taxes without their consent, or basically no taxation without representation. Unfortunately, during another one of Pitt's absences due to an episode of gout, his direct rival in Parliament, Lord Townsend, persuaded Parliament Dude. to levy a heavy duty on colonial imports of tea to raise the revenues lost from repealing the Stamp Act. This then led to the Boston Tea Party, and the rest is history! Wow. I, you know, I, I really do, with all my heart, 
Um, I want everyone to go out and read books like Jared Diamond's Guns, Germs, and Steel. The way that infection and disease ecology has affected us as a human species and guided our history, um, it'll, it'll give you a whole new view on what we really can control and the vast majority of which we have no control one British dude gets gout, and America becomes a country. Really? That 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 needed a John Philip Sousa outro. <laughs> so let's let's talk about what gout actually is. While you sit there and decide whether I just told you one of the best stories ever or I'm wasting your time, but it is 100%. And by the way, you guys, it's it's kind of a false choice. It's very very possible that Dr. Josh absolutely wasted your time and told you a fact that was completely true. <laughs> Can it be both? Yeah. <laughs> so Gouty arthritis, such as that that led to the independence of the American colonies, accounts for only about 5% of all cases of arthritis, and it is one of the most painful rheumatic diseases. Um, it strikes only a single joint, most commonly the big toe, and when it's in the big toe, it's specifically referred to as podagra. When it's anywhere else, it's just called Gout. This is one of these things I was just telling Josh. It's a slam dunk diagnosis. Gout is due um, to yeah. hyperuricemia. And hyperuricemia is not necessarily terrible in itself. About 10% of the population has it, and only half of that 10% goes on to develop gout. And it's a buildup of when you get too much uric acid and it's not sufficiently metabolized by your kidneys it starts to precipitate. And you know, let me take you into the chemistry of it. Synovial fluid, that's what thats what lives in our joints. There's a special oh, yeah. kind of fluid <laughs> that keeps our joints nice and loosey-goosey. And it's not a great solvent mm -hmm. for sodium urate or uric acid. Uh, so it can dissolve in the blood, but not as much. So if you have yeah. a lot of uric acid build up, especially in your joints, it starts to crystallize. That fluid gets super saturated. Mm -hmm. And it crystallizes more in the ankle due to the lower temperature. It's further from your core. So the closer to your core, the easier it is to kind of dissolve more and more of that uric acid. So crystals begin to develop in these lining cells that are far from the body. Those crystals stimulate the formation of antibodies because they're foreign substances. And antibodies then accelerate the formation of new crystals, and that attracts even more antibodies, and you get into complements, <laughs> not like, oh, you look nice, but the complement system in your body that attacks stuff. And this releases enzymes, and that causes acute arthritis that lasts days to, mm -hmm. and then repeated attacks of these will cause chronic arthritis, and then the chronic arthritis will lead to the formation of TOFI, which I always you know, mentally complete with the word grace. And this ends up damaging <laughs> joints and eroding bones. Yeah, and this is why gout not. ends up being a huge issue the longer it goes on. So the short version is you get a buildup in the blood and joints of uric acid, and that forms needle-like crystals. And those crystals set off a chain reaction that cause pain.
Yeah, so uric acid is a nitrogen-containing compound. It's the final step in the breakdown of protein. So the the nitrogen, which is part of amino acids, uh, you know, when you break it down, break it down, uh, the the body and the chemical machinery in our body says, oh, I can't use this stuff anymore. The final step is to turn it into urate and uric acid, which uh, is perfectly evolved, designed, etc., to work with our kidneys. The way you overwhelm this system is, A, you could stop your kidneys from peeing out the uric acid, and you can do that with um, certain medications and things like that. You can add way too much protein to your diet. Um, so eat just a lot of meat, heavy, heavy uh, red meats mostly. Um, or you can add straight uric acid uh, to your diet in the way of certain alcohol containing. Finally, you could potentially damage the kidneys so that, you know, they can no longer transport this uric acid out properly. When the crystals are there and they're being attacked by antibodies, the final conclusion of all of this is that white cells march their way into the joint, which where they're not supposed to be. And they're releasing these cytokines and interleukins, which cause the tissue surrounding it to get destroyed. Um, this is collateral damage because the white cells believe that they're attacking like a bacteria or an invader. They try to envelop those crystals, you know, actually eat them up and chew them up, and they're not able to, so they get stuck. And then they release further alarm signals to say, hey, I need even more white cells to come over here and beat this thing up because there's something here that I just can't break down. So you're telling me the white cells colonized somewhere that they shouldn't have been, keep calling for a bunch of their friends until they until they oppress down the joint and it just becomes miserable for everybody? Yeah, that's what the white cells do. <laughs> so <laughs> you're not gonna we're we're about to lose like Why is it gonna be the white audience? cells? Just poof. Um, <laughs> what about the black cell? We don't have black cells. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, the white cells, the soldiers of the body, the, the immune system are the ones that do this. And this is going to be really important. You know, the white cells are the ones that are, they're trying to do right. They're trying to break down these foreign invaders, these crystals, thinking that they're bacteria. But it, that's going to be important for you guys to remember when we talk about treatment and why we treat gout the way we do. It's also pretty closely tied to culture. Um, again, not in the modern day where we're all kind of adopting a very similar sort of diet, right. but traditionally Asian diets, which were based much more heavily on rice or vegetables, are low in these dietary purines, meant that a lot of people from Asian cultures really didn't get gout. It was a relatively unknown disease in those areas, as opposed to European diets, which were high in meat foods and hunting and alcohol, and all those were associated with hyperuricemia. Because of these emphasis on different diets eaten in different cultures, any cultures that had more of a vegetable-based diet were less likely to be suffering from gout or even know of its existence. And this even carries over to the kinds of alcohols you would see in these cultures. So drinking a lot of rice wine would actually be less likely to cause gout than drinking those heavy, like, starchy and barley-based alcohols. 
Oh, that makes a lot of sense. Okay, so you know, you have a breakdown product, uh, which is uric acid out of purines. If you're not taking in as many purines in the diet, just in your normal diet, then you have less of a chance of accumulating the uric acid. Exactly. So have we mentioned how painful gout is? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the worst thing about it. Before it turns into deformity, actually wearing away at the joints, um, that acute flare-up of the immune system coming to attack the formation of those crystals that suddenly accumulate in a joint space, it hurts like high holy hell. Now, just a brief aside, because we're not going to go into this one too much, there's also something known as pseudogout, which causes a lot of the same pain, doesn't present in all the same areas, but it's caused by calcium crystals rather than uric acid crystals. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So this one, it's pseudo, right? So it's not the actual gout. It's It acts almost exactly like gout. Um, you have crystals that you find in the thing. And then you can also get pedagora and, you know, painful joints the same way that you do with gout. Um, but then you go and do a joint aspirate. You know, you take a needle and you take the the uh, fluid out of there and you look at it under the microscope and instead of seeing these beautiful uric acid crystals you see these rhomboid calcium uh crystals in there and you go oh pseudogout and if you don't have that slam dunk diagnosis of seeing tophrase in the toe for grace that's really your main diagnostic step is you take a sample of the fluid from the joint you boop a little of it onto a slide look at it under the microscope and depending which direction your polarized light is facing and what kind of crystal you're either going to see these kind of bright reddish orange spears which are the uric acid crystals or these lumpy parallelograms of bluish white that are the calcium crystals, and that will tell you if you have gout or pseudogout. Uh, diagnostically, we'll also look at x-rays of the joint to see if the gout is more an acute attack or if it's been going on for a long time and it's chronic, the joint will start to erode and it'll look like the bone's been almost kind of eaten away or nibbled on by Mr. Gout. You're a mean. So, and, you know, if you're looking for pseudogout, you can also use ultrasound or CT to look for areas of calcium buildup. But really, it's that synovial fluid, the joint fluid uh, aspiration where you draw a little bit out and look at it to make the diagnosis. So, how do you treat this? Acute gout attacks traditionally are, ma are managed with a different, a number of different drugs. NSAIDs, which we'll talk about, colchicine, steroids, all three are appropriate, what we call first-line therapy for gout, and you should initiate treatment within 24 hours of noticing. So if you see this, you kind of go in and you treat it immediately, and not every attack of gout requires a visit to the hospital, at least if you know yeah, that it's I, something you suffer The biggest from. obstacle I think that doctors have with treating gout for a lot of their patients who are chronic sufferers are twofold. Uh, listen to your doctor when they say, stop drinking all that beer and stop eating foods with the words rodeo in it. <laughs> but rodeo so, beer yeah, is the stop best. Doing that. And then when you have an acute attack, address it, you know, actually get the therapy as soon as possible because allowing the inflammation to just stick around and erode away your knuckle or at your toe 
you know, once the joint damage is done, it's done. We can't fix it. We can only address, you know, the the acute inflammation the best. So let's talk about these. The main method that most people tend to use are non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like indomethacin. Um, or, as we learned from ancient Greece, colchicine, which is an alkaloid derived from the autumn crocus. And the main reason colchicine's kind of fallen a little out of favor, even though it's very, very effective, is that even back in ancient Greek times, they were aware it could cause, shall we say, fairly severe gastrointestinal side effects. There's a lot of diarrhea or just general stomach discomfort that colchicine can cause. It's the most common side effect of colchicine. The best response to gout is when you initiate colchicine within 48 hours of noting the pain. And if you do, you'll usually notice improvement within 24 hours of initiating therapy. Yeah, it should be really, really fast. This medication is one of the coolest mechanisms that I know. I really love colchicine. It actually, uh, it's it's very side effecty. You know, it's it's quite a dirty drug and causes a bit of nausea and it's not very well tolerated. But if it works, what it does is it actually, Josh, it freezes the microtubules, the actual like the machinery which makes the uh, the the white cells walk or roll towards the site of inflammation, and it stops that microtubule assembly so that the white cells can't. F- like they can't go towards the inflammation anymore. Like, you know, that like amoeboid walking blah, blah, type of movement, it freezes that. Ah, huh. that's pretty neat. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we actually use it in experiments and stuff all the time because it's such a, it's a beautiful inhibitor of that process. Um, yeah, freeze, yeah. tubules. <laughs> but yeah, if you get past the ancient stuff like the colchicine, you know, a lot of physicians recently realized that what you have to do is, in a very broad sense, decrease inflammation. And one of the best tools for this is prednisone. Yeah. Now, you can give steroids, which is what prednisone is, in one of two ways. You can inject it directly into the joint and just take care of the local area. And that's a great way to do it as long as you've made sure that there's nothing infectious going on. If it's just the inflammation, steroids are great. But the last thing you want to do is give somebody something to suppress their immune system when there's an infection in there. So you have to test and you have to test the blood and the fluid to make sure that there's no infection hiding before you give steroids. Uh, and the same is true for colchicine as well, although it's it, it's a little less impactful on the immune system overall. Even though the dose of steroid is low and it's, you know, just for a day or two, um, usually, you don't want for some, you know, for instance, someone to have tuberculosis um, and then all of a sudden, you know, you give them the steroids and they start getting now, sick. Now, when we're talking about non-steroidals, we really mean basically things like Tylenol or indomethacin. And some people say, well, why not take aspirin? Aspirin is what's known as a salicylate. And they've got effects in two different doses because as we mentioned what happens is if you have poor clearance of uric acid meaning you don't get enough of it out or you have overproduction you make too much and that's how you're going to get those crystals to form well on at low doses 
things like aspirin reduce the urate excretion. They actually will make it harder to get rid of the uric acid. So it builds up and it becomes more likely with low doses of things. Whereas at high doses, high doses being four to six grams a day, they promote more clearance. So they're great at high doses for uric acid, but terrible for your liver. <laughs> yeah, and and this is just a principle that we live with in medicine and we understand that you know, we're essentially doing chemistry um, when we're practicing medicine in the modern day and age. You may also be told by your doctor, aside from adjusting your lifestyle, you know, diet and, you know, the stuff that nobody ever, ever listens when we tell them to do, including other doctors, by the way. Did you know, just to make it relevant for pediatrics, that there are actually like genetic causes for gout as well that you can see in kids? You can be born rich. No, <laughs> no, you can have problems with a purine metabolism. So we we do have, you know, some childhood gouts. There's one I want to tell everybody about only because it's super rare and super, super weird. I, I want people to just watch out. You don't is have it, this it, disease. It, okay, but I think I know, but don't you go ahead. This, so it only, it only affects one in 380,000 people people uh, born, okay? And it includes abnormal behavior, uh, mental retardation, gout, hypotonia, and like cerebral palsy. But the flagship feature that every medical student remembers, behavior <laughs> where they eat their own fingers and their own face. Patients with this are born um, with a really horrible mutation, long uh, enzyme called hypoxanthine guanine phosphoribosyl transferase, or HXGPRT. Yeah, exactly. HXGPRT, or some people will say HPRT or HPT. Um, and so Lesh and Nihon uh, were two doctors who saw this in 1962 in a boy that they saw uh, who was four years old but he could barely sit up. And Josh, what they saw, because there was so much uric acid built up, is that he had sand in his diaper. It was from the crystals, the uric acid that was just being um, precipitated in the urine because it was in such a high concentration. Um, but he also had what looked like to be cerebral palsy. And then um, his... Poor thing. His hands were covered in gauze and they they took it off and then they saw the tips of Matthew's fingers were missing and he had bite damage around his lips. And then as soon as the mom took the bandages off, Ma, the poor baby cried and tried to, again, eat his own fingers and bite off parts of his lips. Um, so it's really scary. It's really sad. It would also, and since this is October and we do have our Halloween episode approaching, uh, Lesh Nihan would make an excellent method if, you know, you Hollywood it up a little for a zombie disease because yeah. you get irritability, abnormal involuntary muscle contraction, such as loss of motor control, writhing motions, arching yeah. of the spine, uh, extensive vomiting, spitting, um, cursing, as well as sort of, as we said, the developmental delays and the self-mutilation, all of which sounds like great you know, kind of typical horror movie fare. And if you had a bunch of small little childlike zombies running around, chewing on themselves and each other's, ooh, 
Leshnihan the film. Um, seriously, very tragic, but you know what? I think we both know that Santosh is the official carer today. <laughs> yeah, let's let's try to be nice to the people. And, you know, although this disease is rare, like I said, one in 380,000 people, when, you know, someone does suffer from it, uh, a, you know, a child and, and a mother and father, you know, are, are taking care of a baby now, who has this disease. Is this a fatal disease, um, Santos, I mean, or is it's, this something it's that you can live with? Um, so we should, we, we should have a little bit of compassion and love. You you won't live for too long, unfortunately, because uh, you know we don't have any good tools for just dealing with the overwhelming amount of uric acid that keeps building up and building up and building up. So unfortunately, um, they have um, a, a limited lifespan and uh, the neurological disease is um, can be progressive. One of the biggest things that leads to these formation of uric acid in the blood is a whole chemical pathway that's by and large terribly boring if you don't have to study it, which is known as xanthine oxidase. And the main medication we use for maintenance of preventing gout is something called allopurinol, which inhibits this pathway and decreases the production and synthesis of uric acid. So you use colchicine for acute attacks, but if you're somebody who's prone to gout, a hyper producer or a porous secretor, um, more for a hyperproducer, you take allopurinol and that can reduce your plasma and urine uric acid levels and can even reverse developing Topher Grace deposits. Um, and this has been so helpful that it's even can be obtained for what's called compassionate use in some countries where they just sort of ship it out for free and uh, don't do that. Now, yep. <laughs> the most important thing that I want to kind of get across is that Dietary restriction or modification as a means of controlling gout and hyperuricemia has been and continues to be largely neglected. We're all very quick to rush to medications, but a lot of just dietary changes can really prevent and decrease this disease above and beyond, you know, cutting out alcohol and decreasing yeah. red meats. There's one really neat one I learned about and, and thought I should tell you. Now, traditionally, you gout in men after puberty and in women after menopause, which has to do because menopause or estrogen actually has a protective effect and promotes uric acid clearing. So in 2010, okay. Boston University Dr. Heisen Choi published a study in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition that demonstrated drinking coffee lowers the risk of gouty arthritis. Uh, and they proved that it lowers the risk of gout in so heavy, heavy coffee drinkers. The higher the consumption, the lower the risk. What about the coffee actually prevents gout still isn't entirely understood. But Choi and his colleagues wanted to see if the same held true in women, especially older women. And they sh did the whole study and they showed that, yeah, men and women... A few cups of coffee every day over many, many years cuts the risk of gout in postmenopausal women in half and in men by about a third. And after they statistically controlled for other risk factors such as body fat mass, alcohol consumption, use of diets, diuretics, and dairy intake, they found that a lifetime of drinking coffee appeared to make a pretty significant difference in the risk of a first attack of gout. This is a lot more helpful for women because you don't see too many, you know, 
pre-pubertal boys downing pots of coffee. Although in today's modern world, in 2019, that may no longer be true. But for women who have been kind of lifelong coffee drinkers, the likelihood of a first attack of gout is cut (laughs) in half. We don't know why. We have no clue why, but I just thought that was fascinating. (laughs) Go get you that coffee. We've covered a lot of ground today. You know, I, okay. So... You know, big picture buildup or kind of prevention of excretion of uric acid, which is a breakdown product of purines, Uh, purines, which you can get a lot from alcoholic beverages and uh, red meats, especially. Um, But there's a few others. it, It leads to these uric acid crystals deposit in your knuckles. They, they flare up and they cause inflammation. You stop the inflammation acutely with anti-inflammatory medications and by changing up your diet. And hopefully that should avoid you the gout. You know, like Josh said at the beginning, and I said at the beginning, maybe we didn't, but we should, is that just because you have gout doesn't mean you're going to not get other diseases because... <laughs> even though they got a lot right in the 15th century that wasn't one of them so if you're going to be traveling around the world anywhere and you are subject to gout make sure you stay well hydrated so those crystals don't have a chance to precipitate you know pack a little bit of NSAIDs or colchicine or allopurinol if you're a known sufferer try and avoid purine rich foods or sugary drinks And uh, Mm -hmm. try and limit protein from meat to about four to seven ounces a day. And that should allow you to sort of travel the world and go wherever without necessarily getting attacks from the spider or the gout. So that's it for this week. Uh, Next time, Journal Club with a Just the Tip. And as always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. If you'd like to support the show spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that are in the show notes, along with several of the resources used in researching this episode. If you follow us on Patreon, you'll get to hear the gout poem that Dr. Santosh decided wasn't uh, worth including in the episode. Happy fun times. I, d- I didn't Our decide. Our theme music you is composed by Rachel The show is produced <laughs> by me with a lot of help yeah. from yeah. all our co-hosts and Don't friends. Don't poetry shame And me. until <laughs> next time, as always, happy travels. Bye, guys. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.